As you see before you, I want to continue and hopefully conclude this morning this lesson on identifying the New Testament church. Is it possible in the 21st century to identify the New Testament church? And is it even a worthwhile idea to know? Now, <coughs> pardon me, for many of you, the lesson today will be something that you already have thought through and know. But for many, it may not be that way, and that's okay. And we'll talk about these fundamental things this morning a little bit. I don't want to go rehash the whole lesson from last week. You can get it online at wearejustchristians.com. You can get a recording of that, wearejustchristians.com. If you want copies of the slides, just let me know and I'll send you copies of the slides. But based on some of the scriptures I referenced last week, the elders of the church here believe that it is our duty to try to recreate the first century church in the 21st century. That's our duty. That we are commanded by the apostles to hold fast to the apostles' doctrine, not to change or modify those things over time, because that's what's called falling away or apostasy. And so they gave us, through the wisdom of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, they revealed God's plan and will for Christians both individually and as a body, corporately, in the New Testament, how we're supposed to act and function together and how we're supposed to act and function as individuals. And so it's our duty, if we're going to be faithful to Christ, to recreate that in the 21st century, trying to discern between some of the customs of that day and customs of our day, find out what they meant then, make sure how we can find out how to, that has meaning today. And that's all, it's a process, and it's not easy to do. This is not necessarily a simple thing. It's an ongoing process, one that where a church wants to be a New Testament church is constantly evaluating the things that they're doing and the attitudes in the church to see if they match up. Because it's not just certain practices that make a New Testament church, but it's certain attitudes and understandings about the truth that make a New Testament church. And how would one go about finding this church? Well, I made the point last week that it would be just like we would try to identify anything else, we would begin to look at it. I was some kind of a advanced science student in high school and got sent to all these special things throughout the state of Ohio. One of the things we did all one summer was uh, go out into the woods with a plant, a tree guide, a plant guide, and identify plants. And um, so they give you this big, thick book of you know plants, and you go walk out in the wood and woods, and you say, well, "What's that plant?" Well, you start having to look at it. Is it a tree? Is it a bush? And then you say, what kind of leaves is it? You have to look real carefully at the leaves. What kind of branches? How many leaves does it have on each branch? And you, you start looking through the book. And eventually you can, by looking, comparing what the book says, you can find out if it's an oak tree or if it's poison ivy. You know, and you identify and you, what kind of poison ivy it is and all this. Because you're using a field guide. Same thing is true with birds. They have all these field guides. And they're, they're used to identify different animals and plants. It's all the science of taxonomy or naming things. But it's no different to find the New Testament church. How would you go about it? Well, you would try to look in the scriptures, the holy text from the Holy Spirit, and say, what was the church like then? Can I see that today? And if I look at different churches and their doctrines, not only individual churches in a building somewhere, but the doctrines of various groups, can I identify which ones of those are trying to replicate the New Testament church and which ones aren't? Now, that's a sad fact 
It's a, it is a sad fact that many groups, most groups, are not even trying to ad- repeat the New Testament church. It isn't that they don't know or that they're against the New Testament. They've given up and don't even believe in the principle that they should be trying to imitate the New Testament. And that's that's probably the main thing that I want you to get out of this lesson, of these two lessons. Is the determination, the principle that you should be, I should be, you should say, I should be trying to find and replicate the New Testament church, both in my life as a Christian and in my work with other people. I should be trying, and it's important to do that. If you get that, you're on the right road. But most of Christian denominationism is that that doesn't matter. As long as we feel good about ourselves and we get a warm feeling about the Holy Spirit or over breakfast, he's speaking to me, or whatever, then we're good to go. Because I have this personal love affair with my boyfriend Jesus, and that's... Far be it from me to be sarcastic, but that's what I'm saying where we are today. Me and my boyfriend Jesus are in a love affair, and so I feel good about that, and therefore I'm a sound Christian. That won't cut it. That will not work. That's not New Testament Christianity. It's different than that. Yes, you should love the Lord. But love is more than just feeling good about something or what you think it is. It involves what the scriptures say love is and involves what the church is. So anyway, don't want to get bogged down too much in that. Jesus said as a foundational principle uh, here when he asked his disciples in Matthew 16, um, who do men say that I am? And then they tell him different things. Elijah. And then he says, well, who do you say I am? You disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus told him, skipping a verse or two, down in verse 18. I say that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now I think that this rock, based on the grammar, refers back to the rock of that confession that God had revealed to Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Lot packed in there, but I want to focus on the words I have in red up there. I will build my church. So we know from the scriptures that Jesus Christ was going to do something in the future from that point in time that he was going to call building a church. And we could find out when that was. We talked about that last week, when that happened. That was in the Pentecost after his resurrection, recorded in Acts chapter 2. The church was established and it's called the church there. And about 3,000 souls were added to it on that day. And that's in the past tense all of a sudden. Before that time, the church is in the future tense. Now it's referred to in the past tense. So we know when that happened. And a lot of churches that we find around us all throughout our society, they don't really purport to, to be established then. They'll tell you by this. And they, they put forth their founders and their heads and so forth. Some are not quite as clear about that. They would like to tell you that it started in the first century, but there, it's obvious when the first time anybody began to believe the things that they believe about it because they have a creed book. All these groups have creed books that they have put forth that specify what it takes to be that particular kind of a church, whether it's a Presbyterian church, a First Presbyterian church, a Cumberland Presbyterian church, a First Baptist, a Southern Baptist, a Second Baptist. I'm just, I'm not trying to denigrate those groups in particular. I'm just saying they all are different from each other. And they all have their creed books that differentiate themselves from each other. There are, there are five point tulip Calvinists and there are three point Calvinists. 
and they teach different things. Now, why is that? Are they going back to the Bible to find? Well, ostensibly they would think they would, but they don't take the Bible as a standard. What differentiates them is that creed book, or else they wouldn't need it. You know, if you if you say, well, we don't need a creed book, then well, why do you have one? All right, let's go on. Let's move on from our topic that we talked about last week, and I want to go into another another avenue of identifying the church. We talked about a couple last week, among them, the data which it, the churches were established. And that is, what about worship? That's one way that you can distinguish New Testament churches from uh, just churches. Because it's pretty clear, or at least it's there in the New Testament, what New Testament churches did as far as worship is concerned. Now, notice I didn't say you can go to the Bible and find out what the what they did for worship because the worship of the Jews, as mandated by God in the Old Testament at the temple and the tabernacle, was different than New Testament churches. And that's a whole other subject altogether, but there is a difference in those two things in some respects. In other ways, they're exactly the same because God doesn't change. But in other respects, there are differences there that need to be understood from the New Testament. And one of those things is that the worship of the New Testament church consisted of several specific things. I think primar- uh, in a primal way or a first order of things way, you find the Lord's Supper or communion. What we're going to do in a little while here in taking this communion or the Lord's Supper is called by at least those two names. It's not called the Eucharist or a sacrament, or anything like that in the New Testament. Those are not New Testament words. I don't even know if they're New Testament concepts per se. But it's called the Lord's Supper. When you come together, Paul says, it's not possible to eat the Lord's Supper because they were doing it wrong. They weren't doing what the Lord had said. They were doing a supper. They were calling it the Lord's Supper, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that it wasn't the Lord's Supper because it wasn't what God had commanded. So he tells them again, this is what Christ said to do. This is the order in which Christ said to do it. He says, God delivered this to me, and I've already told you, now I deliver this to you, that you're supposed to follow this pattern of what the Lord's Supper is. And so, yes, it makes a difference whether what you put on this table makes a difference the order in which you take it. How do I know that? Well, because Paul said, the Lord gave this instruction to me, and I'm giving it to you, and here's what it is. And he tells them those things. Now, people that take the New Testament as seriously as they should will look at that and say, this matters, and doesn't. they don't dismiss it as being something, well, don't sweat the small stuff. We don't sweat the small stuff in this church. We're really good Christians, so we have hamburgers and Coke. And churches do that. Because people like hamburgers and Coke on the Lord's table more than they like fruit of the vine and unleavened bread because that's what they want. Or they do this or that. Or some churches, they just, the people don't get to take part of the Lord's Supper. The priest gets to drink the fruit of the vine. They get to eat a piece of bread that the priest puts on their tongue. New Testament say anything like that? There's not a shred of evidence that that comes from the New Testament. That comes from tradition. Now, I don't doubt the people's good intentions who are doing that. But that's not, you can't go to the New Testament and read the instructions that only certain people could take the fruit of the vine. He says, take you all of it, drink you all of it. All of you drink of this, he says. All right, we have this idea that they took this Lord's Supper or communion 
on the first day of the week. In Acts 20 and 7, that was on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread. Paul preached eventually to them. So this breaking of bread wasn't just something that they were eating. This is the only meal that Christians are ever commanded to eat together. The Lord's Supper. When did they do it? They did it on the first day of the week. That's the only reference we have to when they did it was on the first day of the week. That's when they did it. So, based on that fact that that's what Paul reveals here, and there's other references to the first day of the week, that's when we do this. And we don't, we don't pick out which first day of the week we like. You'll say, well, we, we only do it every six months, or we only do it a once in a while, once a year, so that we don't get bored with it. Why should you get bored with it? Who gets to decide? It's like a lot of issues in our society. I think I think we should control hate speech. We shouldn't have hateful language. My question about that is, who gets to decide what it is? Who gets to decide what hate speech is? Well, I guarantee you it won't be you. <laughs> it won't be you. That's what we know. Well, we should just do the Lord's Supper once in a while on the first day of the week. Well, my question is, who gets to decide which first day of the week is the right one. How about we just do it on the first day of the week? I think that'd be a mark you could look at. What's their attitude toward the text about the first day of the week? And so he he even mentions in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul show, when they ask about how should we be doing this, or when he's trying to instruct them, he says, and when he had given thanks, when Jesus given thanks, he refers back to the historical event, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took also the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So there it is. Two things simply done, straightforwardly done by everybody assembled to remember the death of Christ on the first day of the week. That's a mark. And you have even, the uh, next thing is that you find these disciples engaging in prayer. Now there are very few Christians that object to prayer, of course, and I'm not saying that uh, you're going to find very many churches that don't pray. But prayer involves not just private prayer at home, that's one kind of prayer, but then there is the public prayer that accompanies Christian worship or public Christian assemblies. And it seems that that's exactly what's under consideration in Acts chapter 2, given the context, that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. See, there's that principle that what the apostles did in the first century, we should be doing, and we should be continuing steadfastly in it, not abandoning it for our traditions, not saying it's outmoded and unnecessary, but continuing steadfastly in it, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. So there's the public prayer. You know, I'm going to get ahead of myself, but I read something the other day from some um, um, pretty well-known evangelical preacher. If I call his name, I don't mean to be critical of him in particular, but he, he was writing an article about spontaneous baptism that... He said, some churches just, he said, it's kind of come to my attention that some churches just baptize people whenever anybody wants to be baptized. 
we, we don't practice that. He said, we don't practice spontaneous baptism. We wait for enough people to be gathered together to make it worthwhile. And then we have a baptismal service. Well, there it is again. Are you willing to follow what the apostles did steadfastly? Or are you going to make an excuse or a reason? Another historian, I don't have, obviously didn't prepare this this morning, but I can produce this for you relatively easily. He said that he, when he was talking about the introduction of sprinkling as a form of baptism, where the priest or person just sprinkles water, he says, this, he says, uh, this is the Baptist historian, uh, uh, Stanley, I think, or Newman. No, excuse me. He's a Catholic historian, Newman, from the 1900s, late 1800s. He says that the introduction of sprinkling came much after the apostles and it was an example of the triumph of practicality over traditionalism. Because when the gospel was taken into northern Europe, things got colder and colder and it was just not practical to baptize people. And so we have the sprinkling introduced. And so rather than say we need to follow the apostles' teaching, of immersion and baptize, dipping people, we're going to substitute our convenience or our sense of practicality for that, and we're going to call it a triumph. We're not going to say, well, it's an accommodation. We're going to say, no, it's a triumph. I saw a picture the other day posted by my friend Gardner Hall, a preacher of my age, a, a great evangelist. He, he's went to this place, Gardner did, that where the gospel was hardly known at all, lived in hardship among a strange people. He he lives in New York City. And he teaches there in Manhattan. And, uh, sorry, I, I was trying to be funny. I see that it didn't work because we got too many New Yorkers here. But anyway, um, <clears throat> he shows a picture of a square, a little bigger than that table, cut out in ice and snow. And there's water there. And... A woman and a man are standing in the water, and the man's getting ready to baptize this woman. And it says, yes, it's that important. That's his, that's his caption. And I'm thinking, it looks to me like that man is talking. Shut up and get out of, dip and get out of the water. That's what I'm thinking. Because I've been in that situation. <laughs> no. Anyway, um, our, our, do you want to be one of those kind of preachers who got to get in the wa- freezing water or something to give a long homily and prayer? You know, not, that's not me. I'm practical. I just mentioned that. All right. So prayer is something that they followed. They didn't de- relegate it to something different than what it was. And same thing about preaching the word. Not social teaching or something else. Not, not their opinions. But to take the word and carefully deal with it, exegete it, or explain it carefully during a sermon. That's what a sermon is supposed to be about. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, when they departed the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. So they spent time preaching the word. They didn't have a rock concert. They preached the word and just the word to the people. This is an important thing. And if you go other places around your, in your lifetime and you begin to look at churches you want to attend, the, the, your radar should really be up to the message that you're hearing from the public teachers and speakers at that church. Do they take of the Bible, open it up, and explain to you 
as best they can what the text says? Or are they giving you some commentary from some other place? Are they just giving you some inspirational quotes? And Do they have a subject they want to talk about? And so once they get the subject, then they go and look up scriptures that might sound like that. They play, I call it playing charades with the Bible. Sounds like, you know, well, it sounds like this. So they get sort of sounds like that they want to teach. Or do they actually teach you what's there in a way that you can understand it? Now you may say, well, I'm sitting here right now and I'm not getting, well, okay, I, I can, I'll accept that criticism. And if it is true, that the preaching of this church does not convey the Word of God because we're not serious about it, then we need to know about that and we ought to change. If my preaching becomes such that I'm not actually trying to explain the Word clearly and plainly in a simple way to you, then my preaching needs to change or you need to get a new preacher. Okay, That's as simple as I can make it. When, when I'm gone and you got to pick somebody else to come and speak to you, you need to, you need to figure that out. We're having a young man come into the month. I didn't mean to announce that. Um, next week is it? Yeah, okay. Well, it's end of the month. I wasn't wrong, but I am wrong. Next week, we're having a young man come. He's the grandson of a uh, Royce Chandler from Tampa area. Been preaching for many, many years. Micah Chandler. I invited him to come and speak to us. He he's preparing himself to be a gospel preacher. And I'll tell you what. What he's early twenties probably. When he comes next week. I expect you to sit here and listen to him and evaluate his preaching as to whether he's trying to explain the word clearly and plainly to you or whether he's giving you some philosophical mumbo-jumbo or some opinion somewhere. I expect you to evaluate his preaching on that. This is the fault I find with much preaching that takes place not only from young men but from older men. And it's certainly true across the denominational world. But we need to preach the word as best we can. Try to, and that involves a plain reading of the scripture. Now, the New Testament worship also consisted of singing. I didn't put music here, although singing is a form of music. And if you were to look at music in the Bible as such, you would find quite a few references. But New Testament worship music consisted of singing. Oh, there's references in the book of Revelation to different musical instruments. It's just interesting to me that the people that want to use that as justification for musical instruments don't use those instruments. You know, it's very, when God, when God commanded in the temple, in the tabernacle for instruments to be used, when he commanded them to be used, he didn't just say, uh, go get some instruments and play them. Pick out what God has given, pick out something that you like to hear, like a guitar or drum set or something. Uh, he didn't say go find something that you like to play that God's given you the talent to play and you go ahead and play that. Is that what God said in the old time? No. He said you get the harp, you get the timbrel. He told him exactly what to play, what instrument, and who was going to play it in the temple. So I say if you're going to use that as a justification, then you need to do that. And if you say, well, the church is the temple, okay, then that can, and we're all priests and the priest could play. Well, then that doesn't mean, okay, since we're all priests and we all, get, and, and they play, I would say that means that all of you have to have an instrument. We should look like third grade music class. Everybody has their flutophone. Now you think I'm joking. But if the Old Testament passages about instrumental music in the temple translate to the new, 
that the priest could play in the temple of God, could play musical instruments to God in worship, then let's translate it all the way across. And let's give everybody an instrument and let's all play together to worship God. No, no, no. We just want a few of the best ones to do a, to do a show for us. Is that what it says? I don't think that's what it says. If you want to transfer it, then transfer it over. And if you go to Ephesians chapter 5, where it talks about singing and making a melody in your heart, and you say, well, the making melody is strumming on an instrument. Once again, it means everybody has to do it. If Ephesians 5 is about the fact that it's, that we should be strumming on instruments in a church service, rather than strumming our hearts, rather than strumming the instrument of our heart, then all of us need to be strumming on an instrument. Why not? That's what it says. And secondly, it would not be optional. If I ask people that believe in, in, uh, using musical instruments in a worship service, I ask them, well, can you do it without it? Can you do a service without instruments? They all unanimously, oh yes, we can just sing if you want to. We can all just sing. Of course that's okay. Well now wait a minute. If Ephesians 5.19 says sing and make melody, and you say make melody means play on an instrument, the and means we all got to do it every time. And. So we all have to sing and play in the worship together. But that's not how it's done. Once again, we pull something that we like, make it mean something we don't, and we start using scriptures we haven't even considered what they're saying. So the New Testament church taught that, yes, we play on instruments to God. The instrument that you play on is the heart, the one instrument that can be sanctified by blood. Now, here's my argument about that. I know our time is going away. Here's my argument about that that I think is... To me, conclusive. Maybe it's not to you. But in the Old Testament, it's very clear from that and the references to these things in the book of Hebrews that when they, when God established the temple and the tabernacle, everything that they brought into that temple and tabernacle to be used in the service of the Lord was dipped in blood or sprinkled with blood to sanctify it. Every bowl, every cup, every priest, everything was sprinkled with blood to sanctify it because it was brought into the temple, had to be made holy to be used in the temple. Now you tell me that you want to bring instruments into the temple of the Lord today. You want to bring them into the church, which is the temple of God. You want to bring the instruments into the temple to be used. I say, fine, sprinkle them with blood. You want to bring a piano in? Sprinkle it with blood. Make it holy, just like they did did in the Old Testament. You want to bring in a guitar set or drums or flute? Bring it in, but sprinkle it with blood. Oh, we can't do that. Well, why not? Well, I'll tell you why you can't. Whose blood are you going to sprinkle on it? You're going to sprinkle the blood of a bull or a cow? It would take the blood of Christ to sanctify it, wouldn't it? It would take the blood of Christ. Now, let me ask you something. What... New Testament instrument has been sanctified by blood, by the blood of Christ, to be used in the temple of God. What instrument has been sanctified to be brought into the temple with Christ's blood sanctified? It's the human heart. My heart has been sanctified by the blood of Christ and made holy and fit to use in his temple as a means of worship. And that's why the instrument he's talking about in Ephesians 5 is not some mechanical instrument, but it's the human heart. That is, And that's why we sing together. And it doesn't matter how you think we sound or how we think we sound 
It's what God thinks about it, and he wants you to sing. Okay, so so that's that's the argument. So we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart or in Greek with your heart to the Lord. That's how it's done. Now, what is wrong with that? Here's the problem. Even if I dismiss everything else I just said, what could anyone say who claims to be a Christian of whatever denomination, what can they say is wrong with all of us singing together music to God? What is wrong with that? Well, they would tell you, no, nothing is wrong with that. Then why don't you do it? Why do you insist on bringing in things that were introduced in the centuries after Christ back into the temple from the Jewish law and justifying them some other way? Why don't you just do what Christ has to do? That's a good question, I think. It may seem simplistic to you, but it's part of the problem. And so uh, that we have today. So here it is in Ephesians 5, 19. And then he says in, in, in Colossians 3, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to God. Here it doesn't even say to make melody. He just says singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Ado. Singing is ado. So we get ode. Oh, here's a reference for you old people. Ode to Billy Joe. Okay. The ode is the song. Or the Ode of Joy, Beethoven, is it Beethoven or somebody's, the Ode of Joy, Song of Joy? All right, that's the word that's used there. It's a song, it's singing. And we can do that. All right. The other thing that you can tell is this matter of money or giving. Big, huge subject. I don't want to spend too much time because we need to wrap, we need to wrap up one more point after this. But if you read, if you know anything about how uh, denominational, cha- denominational churches work, H- how the sausage is made, I'll say. H- how they make the sausage of what goes on that you see in their public worships. You know that giving and money is the big thing. Uh, I had a good friend, I've told you before, I had a good friend in Gibson City, Illinois, lived in a small town there. He and I, he was a Baptist preacher. He and I became friends working on the drug task force together. I really liked him. We, we liked each, we spent time together. He was a sincere, and a devout fellow, even though I think he was wrong religiously, but he was a good man. And one day we were talking about different stuff, and he says, you know, he says, uh, I'm kind of jealous of you. I said, well, a lot of people are. <laughs> I said, but what what is it about? He says, um, he says, it seems to me that as a preacher, you're you're the main thing that you do is you teach. That's what you're doing. And I said, well, yeah. He said, no, he says, even in the small church I'm at here, I'm a fundraiser and a and a marketing manager. He said, I'm not a teacher. And he was sad about that. Now I don't I can't tell him I don't know anything about in inner workings there, but I could see this then it matches up with what I see a lot of other places. In the New Testament it was it seemed to be simpler than that. Because they weren't trying to market the church. And they weren't trying to figure out ways to extort money from people or run a business. I mean, these churches run everything from breweries to automobile repair shops to everything you can think of, coffee shops to make money. And 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 none of that's justified in the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, Paul said, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the church of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside or lay by in store, in a storage place, in a treasury, Storing up as he may prosper, that there may be no collections when I come. 
They're to put it aside in a common place as each one determined what they could do, and that's how the church raised money. There is no other record of anything else that churches ever did to raise money. You say, well, that just means that's a good way to do it, but you can do anything else you want. So you can have carnivals if you want to and concerts to raise money. Well, I say not if you want to be a New Testament church. People that are trying to imitate what the apostles did and hold steadfast to that teaching are going to raise money the way they did in the apostolic era, the way the Holy Spirit... You don't think the Holy Spirit could have told us that all those other things are okay or they weren't? He, He tells you what they did and he expects you to have the faith to say, this is what we're going to do. Now, I'll just be frank about this. This is very limiting. It's very limiting to depend upon the free will offering a bunch of poor people like you. I mean, it's very limiting. I say that sort of with tongue-in-cheek. So Gary and I cannot make a budget based on what we want to do. We have to base what we're going to plan to do on what we, on the resources we have that come from the collection on the first day of the week. And we live that way. Sometimes that's great like it is now. Sometimes it's very low. And we live in that in that scenario because that's where it comes from. Now, what I found in general, though, is if you put a work before the church, true Christians, you put a work before them and say, this needs to be done, here's what we need to do it, they'll meet that need. Over and over, you can see that. But the idea of the preacher is not just to plan a work and then decide how can we raise... There are churches you can go to around this town. They take up collections in all the children's classes. Everything they do involves a collection. Everything they do involves passing a basket around. Much less all the other things they do that are just part of how they raise money. This is not how it's supposed to be. And I think it brings shame on churches because people think, when people come into this building, I can sense some of them, they're they're concerned about how we're going to try to get them to give money. And nobody who's ever come into this building ever been asked for money. Really not even our members for the most part. Because that's not the job of the church. You're to give. You should give. Give generously. When this basket gets passed around in a while, it isn't, we're going to say it's for convenience, meaning it's just for a convenient time right now to do it. But the the collection is made as this command states, because that's how Christ wants the church to raise money to do the things it needs to do for needy saints, for the teaching of the gospel, preachers, or whatever it may be. And then we have this whole thing about the name. I think you probably thought I was going to start with the name. That's how you find a church. You go out, look in the phone book, Find a building that's got Church of Christ on it, and you're good to go. That's not going to work, okay? And I'm, I'm, a, I've been considered a heretic in Churches of Christ, and been roundly criticized as a rebel for saying that that the church does not have a name. And I'll stand on that today. No one's ever, to my mind, ever been able to successfully contradict that statement. The Church of Jesus Christ does not have an exclusive name. But first, let's start with this, Acts 11. When he found him, it says, found Paul, Barnabas brought him to Antioch. And so it was for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Christians. Well, I'm a me- what kind of Christian are you? So I've been asked that. What kind of Christian are you? Many times. You have too, probably. In fact, I got denied medical care because... I wouldn't tell them what kind of Christian I was. <laughs> Is that the basic story, Judy? 
Something like that. Sort of, she says. Well, most of my stories you could say, well, sort of. I got denied medical care because I would not tell them I was a Baptist, a Methodist, a Presbyterian, or whatever it was, or Catholic. I just said, I'm a Christian. And I filled it out that way and wouldn't budge from that. And they wasn't good enough to get the free medical care. Hmm? I'm not telling you. I'm not going to tell you where. It was, it was somewhere. I, I can't, it was, um, in, in, uh, Fort Lauderdale, I think, somewhere around there. I have to think about it. So, what are you? Well, I'm a Christian. That's the only answer you're going to get. I'm a Christian. Why? To be contrary and on? No, because that's what they were called in the New Testament. That's what they were called. Three times this word is used. They were also called other things. Saints, believers, disciples. All those are perfectly fine. There's no one thing. All those are fine depending on the context as to what to be called. But don't go see... And when you find a church, well, you know, we're, we're this. We're, and I don't want to pick on anyone in particular, but we're a Methodist, we're Presbyterians. You're looking at the divisiveness of denominationalism. Stay away from that. Just be a Christian. Be content to be a Christian. That's what our website is, wearejustchristians.com. There's a reason for that. That's the message. That's going to resonate with some people. Other people are going to hate it. But so be it. You should see... Why should you want to be just a Christian? Because that's what they were in the New Testament. And then you find um, this passage here in 1 Peter 4, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in this name or in this matter. So you might have to suffer because you're a Christian. That's individuals. That's you as individuals. And so you have that whole matter of what it's called. Now, let me go back one slide here to this whole thing because I think I got ahead of myself a little bit um, before we get to this slide. What's the what name does God give the church as a group? What name does He give them? Church of God. It's called Church of God, the Church of God, more than anything else. Is that the name? No, can't be the name. Because they're also called Churches of Christ. They're also called the Saints in Christ Jesus. But it's also called the body of Christ. It's also called the kingdom of the Lord. There's seven or eight different things. It's called the way several times. Do we have a right to pick out one of those and capitalize all the letters and make it our name as opposed to all the others? By what authority do you do that? By what authority? By whose authority? So some of our material here will say, well, go read the sign when you go out today. Nobody does, but it has like six or seven names on it because that's what's here. Are we a church of Christ? You know, the the church in the Bible as a collective unit is never called the church of Christ. Never. It's called the congregations as a group are called churches of Christ, meaning each individual congregation could be called a church of Christ, but not the church of Christ. The, or the Church of God. That phrase is not used as a title, capital C, Church of God in the Bible. Not used that way. It isn't meant to be used that way. Now I know this is an issue that just causes people's blood pressure medicine to be you know, taken in gulps and handfuls. But you've got to think about this. And now my point in is not to be a troublemaker about it. I know that's what people think. My point is that if I want to pass on the gospel to my sons and daughters, and I want to pass it on to my grandchildren, I have to transmit it faithfully 
from the gospel to me to them. And I can't transmit faithfully to them a name for the collective universal church because it's not in the Bible. And I can't pass that name on to them. And when you go to where I grew up in Ohio and you go find a building with capital C Church of Christ on it, let me tell you something. You have an 80% chance of finding a building with an organ or instrument inside. Because the churches of Christ, capital C in Ohio, almost all with the instruments. So you can't look for that sign per se. Is that a good place to start? Yes, it is. Of course it is. And so we, we, I use that where people are looking for that. And they call me up and they'll ask me, I says you're a church of Christ. Well, what do you believe? And I like that. I got a call this week like that. What do you believe? What do you teach? Because there's a person who understands that the name church of Christ won't necessarily guarantee they find the right thing. Who did that? Well, the devil came in to the Lord's field and sowed tares. Weeds that look like the real thing, but they're not. You've got to be careful to pull out the weeds and find the weeds in there. All right, our time is way past gone. Thank you for listening this morning. You need to ask yourself whether the church that you're going to be a part of is striving toward that divine pattern. If they're not, you need to find one that is. So we're going to sing as we close this morning a song that Steve has selected, number Um, 29, all to Jesus I surrender. And I pray that you'll consider this. If you this morning need to be just a Christian, then come and be baptized. Become just a Christian. And that's what you will be. We'll baptize you into Christ, into Christ's body. He'll add you to the church, and you can be just a Christian. If you want to join yourself to this group of disciples, to follow together with us, then so be that. You do that. But we'll call you, you come to the front row this morning and everything is ready for you to be baptized if you are. And we'll also this morning ask you if you'd like to prayers or need to speak to me about something or you need prayers for some problem, come to the front. We'll pray with you about that right now. Let's stand and sing.